0: Usually, if something goes wrong, it's, it's me. Uh, would you pray with me as we turn to the word? Father, Lord, we've sang about how the church's one foundation is Jesus. How from heaven he came and sought her. How he gave his own blood for her. And Lord, we've gathered this morning around your word so that he can wash us through the word. To make us ready for that great day when we are united with Christ again. so Father, I pray that you would make us ready. Humble our hearts before you. I pray that I would be faithful and accurate as I preach. And that your people would be blessed. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I prepared for this message this week, I asked a question. And go ahead and answer this in your mind. Uh, What are some things that you have heard Christians argue about, particularly things that you might find in the Bible. Now, obviously, there are lots of Christians that disagree about politics and things like that. I don't need an answer out loud, uh, but hang on just a second. Let's look at Psalm 119 and hear what God intends his word to do in us and for us. So Psalm 119, I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. It's our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man or how can a young woman keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So from this psalm, really just this small portion of this psalm, we see that the word of God is about far more than information. It's about life transformation. It's about knowing what is right and wrong and being changed from the inside out so that you don't just know what's right, but you love what's right. And so in our scripture this morning, I'm in the book of First Timothy again. And last week I talked a little bit about how the book of timothy and the entire bible is a divine message and it's a sweet message and this week we see the first indication of one of the things that especially faithful pastors must do but really all believers are called to this as well and while you turn to 1st timothy i want to give you my main idea this morning paul writes this letter to Timothy, and the main idea from our text is that faithful pastors must protect the church from false teaching and guide others toward a life of love and faith. I'm going to say that again. There are a couple parts. I, I, I kind of wish I could have made it a shorter sentence, but faithful pastors must protect the church from false teaching and guide others Toward a life of love and faith. So, as I was getting ready this past week, I asked a couple different people, you know, what are some of the maybe kind of humorous and funny things that you've heard Christians disagree about and and maybe fight and bicker over a little bit? Uh, One of my favorites was choir robes. Todd Regester, one of the guys that joined the church the past year, mentioned that you know some people have the opinion that you, you have to all look the same when you're in a choir because that lets people focus on the words and, and you can be drawn into a deeper experience of worship where you might be distracted by someone's clothing, apparently. and It's fine to have that opinion, but at the same time, how much are you going to go to war for it? How much are you going to fight over it? I've heard Pastor Ed talk about, he preached a message one time where the whole point of the message was you shouldn't judge people based on what they wear, but you should should seek to know their heart and what's inside is what matters. And so he wore shorts, which is maybe the only time he ever wore shorts to preach. And someone was so upset that they left the service without even listening to what he said. People have... Deep felt convictions about clothes that at the end of the day are not that important. One of the things that immediately came to mind, and some of you are going to be like, oh yeah, I remember this. And some of you are going to be like, what? Like opinions about the end of the world. Like when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? And, and, and Christians love to fight about something called the rapture. Is there a rapture? When will it happen? And, and so if that's a totally new word, it's like it's the idea, if you've ever read the Left Behind books or seen the movie or, or whatever, the idea that God is going to remove Christians before things get really bad on earth, before Jesus comes back. And, and sometimes you'll see little bumper stickers like, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. And Christians loved to try to predict the future about when that would happen and what that would look like. And they disagreed a lot. And sometimes their disagreements became arguments and distractions from the main point of what we are called to do. That's not to say we're not to be discerning. That's not to say you shouldn't study these things and learn about them. What it is to say is sometimes. Faithful pastors have to protect the church from false teaching and guide others toward a life of love and faith. Teaching is not just judged by content agreement among them, and that's how it ought to be. You ought to know what you believe. You ought to be able to discuss what you believe. You shouldn't divide over what you believe unless it pertains to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sins. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about how do we do this as a church? How do we keep the main thing the main thing? What does it look like for faithful pastors and faithful church leaders to guard the church in truth? And as we do this, I'm going to raise some things that we can all kind of laugh about and chuckle over. Like no one is going to go to war over the rapture today. I would be very shocked if anyone cares that much. 20 years ago, maybe. But today, so many pastors have been utterly foolish and made predictions that are simply not true. I, like, how many of you have heard people predict who the Antichrist is? Like, name names. Okay, so a couple hands go up, you know, and I've heard different. You know, it it can't be Gorbachev anymore because he kind of he's kind of old. But Vladimir Putin, maybe. Uh, I heard a pastor say it could be some Muslim cleric. For literally thousands of years now, or probably more like fifteen hundred. Different people have suggested the Bishop of Rome may at some point be the Antichrist. Uh, Martin Luther firmly believed that in his day. And, And the funny thing is it really discredits the word of God when faithful pastors in other areas are wrong again and again and again in predicting things that they really have no idea if they're true. I remember hearing a pastor when I was younger saying, if you are... Looking at a clock, trying to guess what time it is on God's timetable. We believe that we are at eleven o'clock, and midnight is when Jesus is coming back. And he said, "Church, the thing you need to look at is oil in the Middle East. Oil controls the world." Well, then they discovered oil in North America, and prices cratered, and it the whole global world changed overnight. And the false predictions about events that are written about in Scripture, can serve to undermine and discredit the church that's supposed to be preaching a message of forgiveness, that God loved you so much that his son died for you, and that you can be forgiven for your sins, and you can be made part of this family. Nobody wants to be part of a dysfunctional, bickering, and arguing family, right? And so if we miss the main point, instead of attracting people to the hope and love of God, We drive them away with, frankly, foolish predictions over things that are secondary, that don't matter that much. Good and faithful teaching, instead of creating this division and speculation and guesswork, good and faithful teaching ought to cause you to marvel at the love of God. When you leave, you should be thinking more about God and His love for you than about the newspaper and what might happen in the next 24 hours or 5 or 10 years or even 100 years. You should be amazed at what God has done for you and hopeful in what he will do for you, not guessing at how he might do it. So sometimes a good pastor will shut down what might seem like an interesting, invigorating discussion. We don't often think about pastors having a responsibility to stop discussion. And so I don't mean that in a rude way, but let me show you where Paul commands this very clearly to Timothy. So my first point this morning is that a faithful pastor is called to guard the truth. And I want you to look at verses 3 through 4 with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. There are a couple things here, uh, and the first one that I want to point to is that Paul is telling this young pastor it's his responsibility to charge people within the church to not teach. Now, man, that is exactly the opposite of how so often we think today, where we think, shoot, I need three different Sunday school teachers and looking for anybody with a pulse. Would you be willing to stand in? I'll give you a curriculum, read the curriculum, it'll be great. Paul is actually telling Timothy, I want you to discourage people from teaching in the church. Why? Because the content of their teaching is not helping people know the Lord Jesus. They are obsessed over the small things the quote-unquote interesting things that cause you to go, oh, I wonder. And that, oh, I wonder, is not what is supposed to happen when you interact with the Word of God. The Bible says the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the core of who you are. When you interact with the Word of God, the first thing that ought to be happening is you ought to be listening for God to speak to you in your heart and in your life. Paul says so clearly in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, knowledge puffs up. It makes you proud, but love builds up. It makes the body of Christ stronger. When we love one another, we are edified. We are built up. If we love obsessing over unimportant, trivial things, we are divided and weakened. And so sometimes a good pastor has a responsibility to say, you know what, I don't think your discussion here is productive. It's not producing godliness. This class is canceled, which we don't often think about. And yet, Paul clearly charges Timothy as part of his responsibility as a faithful pastor is to guard the truth. He says, watch for this in your church. He knows it's already happening. You know, saints, like, it's fine to say we're going to shut down bad discussions, but the assumption is that none of the discussions we have as a church are bad, right? So that happens in other churches and other places. The reality is this is a responsibility for us. We need to pay attention to our education at every level In the pulpit and in the classroom and in small groups and ask the question, is this helping us unite and grow in godliness? Or is it leading to futile speculation? The things that he talks about in particular, he mentions two, and I'll point you back to the text again. And by the way, as an aside, this is why as a pastor I want to stay very close to the text of scripture. Because it's a lot safer. If I just help you understand what the word of God teaches, I know I'm not engaging in this kind of futile speculation. So again and again, I want to point you to read the Bible with me to make sure that I'm being faithful to it. Paul says that these people, verse 4, had devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. There's a couple ideas about what that might be. Uh, The short answer is we don't know exactly. It's possible that they were looking at the genealogies of the Old Testament and trying and to mine them for significant meaning beyond what God had actually intended. It's also possible uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul particularly mentions Jewish myths. And do you remember last week I mentioned there are books that are outside the Bible that come from around the first century, and some of those books uh, would retell the Old Testament. They, they were like fan fiction, okay? So, so like the, the online stuff that writes about Harry Potter that J.K. Rowling did not write, it's, it's not canon, it doesn't count. You can write whatever you want online, but it doesn't affect the stuff in the actual series. Well, that happened with many of the characters from the Old Testament around the first century, and people would read these books and they would be entertained by them, but then to try to take them into church and treat them like scripture immediately causes a problem. And as part of that type of study, people would then look at the actual scriptures and begin to look at genealogies and try to find different things in them like Enoch is a favorite character because there are a couple verses that are really exciting and interesting that are part of scripture and so they would fill out the rest of his life and tell you an exciting story but it wasn't part of the inspired word of God and so you can imagine going to Sunday school class on Enoch and learning everything you could about Enoch there's two verses about him in the Bible that's about it but you can imagine what his life was like and so you leave Sunday school and you're like whoa that was so crazy and instead of thinking about Jesus and the message of hope that actually comes from the gospel. You're obsessed over a minor character and guessing about things that you cannot be certain. That's what Paul's talking about. If you love to try to figure out details that are outside of the main gospel, I'm not saying you shouldn't think about it at all. Go ahead, study. But don't you dare make it the main thing that our church studies about. And don't you dare let it be a source of division. And for that person differently than how you might pray for a congressman or a president. You know, because Paul tells us we're supposed to pray for kings and those in authority. And this guessing game probably is not leading us to faithfulness in prayer. So looking at the result of trying to figure this out, feudal speculation and interest and, and maybe even hoarding and craziness, tells us that something is off. If instead, after Sunday school, we think, guys, we've got we've to set aside some time. We need to pray for our leaders. Things are scary. We don't know what's happening. Let's, let's pray that God would lead them to faith in Jesus, that God would bless them with truth from his words. They make wise decisions that bless the whole world. Let's be faithful in praying for our leaders. That's a fruit of a good and faithful discussion because it's profoundly biblical. It's what we're supposed to be doing in our hearts and with our actions. So sometimes I think you might use a question like that that kind of says, hey, is this actually helping us be obedient? Sometimes I think we might need to reassure someone of the truth with a statement like this. So this is another one that, that people love to speculate and guess about. Have you guys ever heard something about the mark of the beast? Right? A couple people, and, and what it might be. I, I mean, I, I've heard everything from tattoos, I've, I've heard some vaccine theories, I've heard all kinds of stuff. and, and as a little kid, I remember watching the, the movies where they would kind of take you through end times and, and you saw people get killed for their faith. And it was, it was kind of a crazy stuff for a little kid to watch. I may be slightly scarred from it. But the, the question of what is the mark of the beast has entertained and interested the church for a couple thousand years now. And, and some people are fearful that they will accidentally get this and be cut off from Christ and go to hell without ever meaning to. And so if somebody says, Pastor, man, I, I don't know, like, should I take this vaccine? I don't, I don't know if it's the mark of the beast or not. I, I'm not talking about vaccines this morning. It's a different discussion that is also sometimes fruitless. If you're worried that you're going to lose your salvation because you do something and you are not clearly contradicting Scripture, here's what I want to say to you as your pastor. If you are trusting in Jesus as your salvation, you are not going to lose your salvation accidentally. God will not let that happen. And so if I see people having a fruitless discussion that's causing anxiety in others, I want to shut it down with a kind and a gentle statement that points people back to the truth that God loves you. That you don't need to be afraid of accidentally losing your salvation because of a credit card or a chip or anything. That if you're trusting in Jesus, make wise decisions and trust that God will keep you safe. So, number one, faithful pastors guard the truth sometimes by shutting down discussion. Also, the question then becomes, why does the pastor have this job? I mentioned, I, I think that every Christian has this job to a degree, but why do pastors have this kind of authority is what Paul is describing it as. And here's part of why. Not because pastors are better. It's because in some sense, pastors are a little bit specialized. And so here's what I want to use to illustrate that. We, we bought a new van uh, like last November. And in, in driving this van, there, there were a couple scenarios, usually where we would slow down and turn, and there was a great little kunk. And I'm not a mechanic. So if there's a little kunk in my car, and I can make it happen over and over again, I do know enough that I know that something is wrong. But I don't know enough to know what to do it or how to fix it. So I took it to Ed Coleman, and Ed Coleman said, Oh yeah, you got a bad tie rod. He almost didn't even have to look at it. He just knew. Because he's got decades of experience in diagnosing vehicles. He understands them very, very well. And so his knowledge and expertise and experience gives him authority to fix my car when I don't have that. Same thing with medical stuff. Okay, like everybody's a doctor now that we have Google, right? But the truth is, we're not medical degrees actually do make a difference in understanding information. And so when I have medical problems, as much as I want to educate myself and I do read the internet, I you know it's try to find out some information, at the end of the day, I'm still going to go get a doctor's opinion. Maybe a couple of doctors, but the doctors have information and experience and access to tests that I just don't have. And so I depend on their experience and education to help me make informed decisions. And what I want to say, saints, is that, that pastors are like that too. That years of study, college helps, dedication to reading the scriptures in a very intense way access to excellent resources and knowing how to study it makes a difference so just like with physical science and medical information ultimately i'm responsible for my body and you're responsible for your body too right within the church you are ultimately responsible for your soul you're going to stand before jesus on your own i'm not going to be there with you thank god Uh, the Bible does say that I have a special responsibility for you as your pastor. So when I stand before Jesus, I do have the question of, have I been a faithful minister of the gospel? Have I helped the church know the word? Have I grounded them in the truth? That's going to be on me. But at the end of the day, your responsibility is to seek to know the truth, and part of knowing the truth is seeking to be part of a church where someone who has education and training can come alongside you and help you process the massive amount of information that you can get online or hear on the radio or on the web or whatever. There is an expertise within the ministry, and I want to say this carefully, because it doesn't always go with a college degree. Sometimes it does, but I passionately believe that as saints have walked with the Lord for decades, I'm still a young guy, I'm not 40 yet, Some of you guys have known the Lord Jesus longer than I've been alive, and you have a personal knowledge of Christ. You've seen Jesus carry you through some of the deepest valleys. And so one of the reasons I believe that the Bible teaches a plurality of elders is good and healthy for the church is someone with education who's young can come alongside someone without a formal education who's a little bit older, and together we can bless the church by helping them know Jesus in a deep and a personal way. And so the responsibility of faithful pastors within the local church guarding the truth has this mixture of faithful pastors are not just educated pastors. Faithful pastors are people who have walked with Jesus for a long time. Paul describes later in this book what that looks like, and and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But for now, the main thing that I want us to remember is that pastors do have a particular responsibility to the church to do this type of guarding. Sometimes it makes people mad. Sometimes it causes people to leave the church. Some of you saw, I I did three videos last year about false teaching because there was a little bit of some false teaching going on, especially early on with COVID. And I didn't name names, but I did shut it down because I felt like it was dangerous and destructive within the church. And we did have someone leave over that. It's, who are you? It's, well, I'm trying to fulfill the responsibility that I have as a faithful Christian pastor. I'm, I'm nobody, but the Word of God is everything. And if the Word of God contradicts this teaching, we can't have it. It's not helpful, it's not healthy. In fact, it's destructive and dangerous. Some of the things that maybe we would disagree a little bit about you can read popular books like, have you guys ever heard of the Bible Code? Uh, it's, it's a New York Times bestseller that claims that you can look at Hebrew letters and every Hebrew letter has a number associated with it. That is actually true. But then based on Hebrew letters, you can predict all kinds of things. And they'll claim, you know, we predicted the assassination of JFK using the blah, blah, blah. And people are like, oh. Guys, it's not true. That's not what the word of God is for. And so, if somebody comes to you with this kind of book and you're like, man, I don't know Hebrew, I don't know. Like, if you don't know, you can come to me, you can come to another pastor you respect. And say, pastor, what do you think of this? And I'll be honest with you, I think it goes in the trash because it is not how God has inspired his word. God gave us his word with great clarity, and I want to say this carefully because there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. There are things that it's helpful to examine culture and history and language and to learn about, but most of what is in the Bible is enormously clear, and in fact, I'll say it this way, all of what you need to know to be saved and to be a godly person is very, very clear. Because it's repeated all over the Bible and explained and illustrated in so many ways that if you read the word of God, you know that God loves you. You know that the forgiveness of sins is available through faith in Jesus Christ. And you understand what it means to be a follower of of Jesus because his teaching is so clear. Are you going to have questions about a couple of weird verses? Yes. Yes. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the Apostle Peter says that, man, some things that Paul writes about in his letters are hard to understand, and he's right. But that's some things. That's not most things. Most things are enormously clear. So, saints, the passion for guarding the truth has got to be a whole church passion. It's got to be something that we agree on. We can't obsess over days. There, there are a couple people that love to think about feast days in the Old Testaments, and then they take those feast days and they try to predict when Jesus will return. Guys, that is not why God gave the feasts in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Paul says so clearly, one person esteems one day as better than another, another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Don't try to figure out the future based on Old Testament feasts. You want to keep a holiday? Keep a holiday in a biblical way and be godly about it. Don't divide the church over it. And if you don't want to keep the holiday, don't. This is not the gospel of Jesus. This is a question over tradition. And good and godly Christians can and and should disagree about it. Loving each other through the disagreement. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's saying, look, I'm Jewish. All of those stuff in the Old Testament, man, you can learn from it. But don't act like you're some sort of person with a crystal ball predicting the future with it and through it. God gave you his, his word so that you would know the truth, not so that you could predict the future or guess what might happen. So let's remember to to keep the main thing the main thing and to guard that because it's so precious. The stewardship from God that is by faith that Paul writes about in these verses is the responsibility to remember what God is doing. And what is God doing? He is saving sinners right now through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Helping people understand end times is not gonna help them understand their sin and need of a savior. Helping people understand the hope of Jesus is our core mission. So understanding that the word of God is clear can help us as we try to assess whether teaching is good within the church. And having a proper view of why God establishes pastors within a church can help us do that even better. The goal of this, verse 5 and point 2, the goal of this is love. Look at verse 5. This is so critical. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I am so thankful for that verse because when I go to someone privately and say, hey, I don't think so-and-so is a biblical teacher, which is maybe a nice, polite way of saying, I think they're a false teacher, they don't usually feel loved. They feel angry and judged. But the goal of that kind of gentle correction is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of good and faithful teaching and of guarding the truth is to build up the church in love. I already referenced that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul says, That knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. One of the ways that we assess good teaching is, does it make you more patient and kind? Do you love hearing other people teach the truth? And do you rejoice no matter who is teaching it? Do you think more about Jesus after hearing your favorite teacher? Or do you think more about the teacher and how clever they are and how smart they are? Because if you hear a fantastic message and you leave thinking, so-and-so is a great preacher, something's off. You ought to hear a fantastic message that makes you marvel at the goodness of God and His greatness, that makes you humble at His love for you. The thing that good preaching ought to do is it ought to point you to God. And so, if you are impressed by how clever and persuasive the speaker was, something is off. But if you are overwhelmed with the love of God, something is profoundly right. There's an old Scottish pastor by the name of James Denny that said this, and and I think it's absolutely true. He's speaking particularly of preachers, and so he says, No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. You can't do both at the same time. I'm going to give you that again. He says, no man can give the impression that he himself is clever, and that Christ is mighty to save. You know why? Because cleverness gets in the way of Christ. I'm not saying you have to preach like an idiot, or be stupid and boring and dull. That's not what I mean at all. But if the way that you deliver the word of God is always through cleverness, or even primarily through cleverness, people will think more of you as a preacher, and they won't think as much about Jesus. My goal, and I'm not saying that I do it every week, or or even most of the time, I hope that I do, but my goal as a preacher is to have you leaving, not thinking of me, but thinking of the Word of God, and thinking of God. The goal of this is love, and that's what I mean by love. Assurance that God loves you. Assurance that you can love other people because your own sins have been forgiven and you are empowered and equipped to love in a way that you could not unless God were active in you. So as much as it might seem mean and judgmental to shut down someone else's favorite teacher or whatever, the goal is to love one another and to love God faithfully. That's the aim of this command to stop some people from teaching. And Paul ends this by talking about the guilt of bad teaching. So I've taken a moment to talk about guarding the truth and what that looks like. i taken a moment to talk about the goal of love, which is why we guard the truth. Finally, I want to end talking about the guilt of bad teaching. So look at verses 6 and 7 with me, the guilt of bad teaching. Paul says, Certain persons, by swerving from these Have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And we're going to talk a couple places in 1 Timothy. Paul circles back to this idea. Uh, He says, certain people. Timothy would have known immediately who he was talking about. Later in the book, he actually names two of them. In verse 20, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander uh, and very clearly describes how they probably were elders, they probably were pastors within the church, and because they swerved from the gospel, they were thrown out of the church because their ministry was no longer helping the church become a loving place. Instead, it was a divisive place, and they were serving themselves rather than Christ. But here in our text, he just says certain people, and in a way, that's really helpful because by leaving them anonymous, he leaves it open that at times, we've got to be careful. I might be the certain person that needs to be shut down. You might be the certain person that needs to be shut down. We need to guard the preciousness of the gospel by being open to the possibility that, man, I might be obsessed with the wrong thing right now. I might be chasing a rabbit trail, and it's really interesting to me, and I enjoy it, but it's not beneficial to the church, and it's not building up the church. And so Paul's warning that certain persons have swerved from the preciousness of the gospel and the the aim of the charge, which is love and a pure faith, can be a warning to each of us. Test your heart. Are you full of the love of God? Are you focused on the work of Christ? Are you drawing other people to the work of Christ? Because the reality is, any one of us could be this certain person at one time or another. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is the last two words, that these people make confident assertions. They make confident assertions. What that means is, sometimes somebody will ask me a question about the Bible, and I will say, man here are two or three possibilities. This is the one that I think is right. This is the one that like, like the, the discussion that I was telling you about how these different guys were talking about the millennium that, that appears at the end of Revelation. And they're saying, man, you know, I respect your view because this evidence is really strong, but I don't know about this. And in humility, we'll lay out different possibilities and say, we're gonna try to understand, but at the end of the day, nobody's really sure. That's not confidence. And sometimes humility says, we shouldn't be super confident about these minor things. These people are enormously confident. They are very confident, and at the same time, they are very ignorant. They are interested in minor passages of the Bible that are distracting people away from what God is doing in Jesus, and at the same time, you would have heard them talk and thought, wow, that was so great. You might have left Sunday school and felt like, that was the most interesting Sunday school class I've ever had. Get in your car, go home, man. I love my church. And the reality was, it wasn't beneficial or helpful at all. Because their confidence and their desire to teach has absolutely nothing to do with their qualifications to teach. You can be confident and interesting, and be completely unfit for ministry. What is a qualification for ministry? Is faithfulness to Christ. Love for what not just a few interesting minor passages of the Bible say, but love for what all of the scriptures teach. Humility that, that is willing to admit when you don't know something. An absolute bedrock confidence in Jesus Christ. We want to be confident in Christ, not in our private, small opinions. These people were passionate in how they presented the word of God. They were confident in what they thought. And Paul says they were completely in error and had no business teaching. No matter how many people attended the class or how interesting people thought it was. Saints, this matters because sometimes what's interesting is not what's edifying. We are called to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good preaching is not just smooth presentation and enjoyment. The test for good preaching is truth and love. Is it true? Can you find this truth in all of scripture? Does it help us understand the love of God for us? Does it help us love other people? The test of good preaching and teaching is not just, do I feel good after I listen? Sometimes really great preaching leads to weeping and repentance that leads to life. Look at the great sermons throughout the book of Acts. It describes how Peter would preach the good news of Jesus. And people would say, man, our hearts are cut to the quick. What do we do? What do we do to be saved? And Peter would point them to Jesus and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you think they felt happy after they realized their sinfulness? No. Good preaching will sometimes expose your sins and then lead you to the hope of Christ. It never leads to despair. It always leads to hope in Jesus. But there are so many best-selling authors and teachers today that, man, they'll have great big smiles and giant full auditoriums, and people will leave feeling good, and they've never confessed their sins and realized their need of a Savior. Next week, we're going to talk more about the law, because Paul will talk about how these teachers in particular misused the law, meaning the Old Testament, the rules that God laid down for his people. Some of what they were doing is, is they would say, you know, hey, if you really want to be close to God, eat this food and not that food. If you really want to be close to God, you should probably be single forever and don't get married. And, and so they would start adding rules on top of things. Friends, there are great and popular teachers that don't even claim to be Christians that will give you rules for living, and they're okay. I'm not saying they're bad. But if you believe that those rules make you more acceptable before God, or that God loves you more deeply because you have your life together and you follow a set of rules, you're believing a lie. God doesn't love any of us because we're good people. God loves us because he's God and he sent his son to save us. Scripture teaches that while we were yet sinners, while we were a wreck, while we were a mess, God loved us before our lives were ever together. And that's great news for those of us who still don't have our lives together. Because God loves you Not because you're able to follow a system or a set of rules. God loves you because he is a God of love. And he's offered you salvation even if you can't get your life together. The hope of Jesus Christ is that it's a free gift of grace to all people. And that's how we know God loved us. Can you imagine if we had to do things in order to earn God's love, salvation wouldn't be grace. The church couldn't be founded on love. It would be founded on requirements for membership. But instead, because the love of God is conditioned on nothing, we can say that the church is built on the love of God because you don't have to do anything to be a member here. You have to be a believer in Jesus Christ, understand his grace and his love for you, and understand that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's the main thing. Friends, sometimes we need to dig deep in the Bible But it must never distract us from Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Our goal in preaching is not so much to explain every mystery in the text, but instead to regularly, persistently, every week offer the hope that God loves us and forgives us and makes us part of his family because Jesus died for us and rose again. So, friends, as I close, I want to encourage you to think through what draws you to the Word. Are you drawn to the Word? Are you curious about things that we can't know for certain? Or do you have a deep thirst to know God in a deeper and deeper way? Friends, as we think about What we do as a church, as we establish Sunday school classes, and we hope to do that soon, as we think about small groups and as we think about how we grow in the knowledge of the faith, let's be faithful to listen to the leadership that God has established and is establishing in our local church. Paul will talk a little bit later in this book about how our leadership is accountable to the congregation. The final authority in the church is the congregation. And yet he does establish these leaders to guard the truth and commands them to guard the truth. So let's be faithful to listen to the leadership that God establishes in our local church. Let's pray for our leaders. It's not an easy job to know when to rebuke and when to speak a compassionate, kind word. Some of my least favorite verses in the Bible are when Paul says things to pastors like, rebuke, because it means that sometimes I have to. Let's pray for our leaders that we do this wisely, full of the love of God and full of grace. Friends, every one of us here, let's check our hearts as we listen to teaching. Are you drawn to teachers that interest you and entertain you, or are you drawn to teachers that overwhelm you with the love of God? Are you drawn to teachers that help you love the Lord Jesus more and more? And finally, in order to make that assessment, let's make sure that we remember Jesus. This is why once a month we observe communion as a church, to remember his body and his blood for us, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. We need that regular reminder of what makes us a Christian. It's not following a set of rules. It's, it's not being part of a certain culture. It's Jesus Christ. He does this for people all over the world who come to him in faith. And so let's remember Jesus Christ so that as we seek to grow in the faith by listening to preaching and teaching, we keep the main thing the main thing. Would you pray with me? Father, Jesus has said to us that he will build his church. And we ask that he would build it here in Holly. That it would be united around the truth. That you would protect us from false teaching that you would give us leaders with courage and conviction and faithfulness so that the love of God is guarded and spread all around the world. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit according to your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.